You know, once we have the internet and our social medias, and now my kid, of course, isn't on Facebook. They're on Instagram, right? And on TikTok. But once everybody became their own media personality, living in their own world and their own brand, I get why they feel they have to just tell the world who they are, as much as I find it completely annoying and like way over, I mean, oversharing and information I don't want to have. And why do you need to do that? I know why, because we created an economy and a world where everyone has to broadcast their, what they had for dinner and their sexuality. And this is how they establish themselves in the world. I feel like, you know, we, we're just living with the world we gave them. Welcome to the Unspeakable Podcast. I'm your host, Megan Daum. My guest is writer and performer Annabelle Gerwich. Annabelle has a decades-long career in both film and television and in print media. She never got rich, but she managed to carve out a decent life as a working actor and a published author. Over the last several years, her fortunes have changed alongside changes in the industry she's relied on, and in her 50s, she found herself divorced renting out a room in her house for extra money, and like millions of other Americans, wondering how a middle-class existence can slip away after a lifetime of hard work. She chronicles these struggles, often hilariously, in her fifth book, You're Leaving When? Adventures in Downward Mobility. In this conversation, Annabelle spoke with me about how she thinks she got to this place, what she's learned about homelessness and access to health care, and how a recent medical crisis has raised her stakes even further. She also spoke about her child, now a young adult, who identifies as non-binary, and how coming to understand that identity led her to think that future generations might be better able to make sense of the world than we do, and maybe even make it more livable for all of us. Annabelle Gerwich, welcome to the Unspeakable Podcast. Oh, hi, Megan. I'm so happy to talk to you. Frankly, I no, I, I don't mean like I, I'm happy to talk to anybody, like you're anybody, but like I am so any, over any port in the storm. Yes, yes. <laughs> any, any port in the virtual <laughs> storm. Like I'm making too much conversation with people I walk by on the street. Like that's I feel like where I'm at these days right. with the pandemic. Like. Nobody wants to really engage in that way except me, and that's creepy. Anyway, um, hi. Yeah, and and here you are yeah. uh, promoting a book, and yeah. <laughs> this is your publication week. This is your book tour. You're leaving when is your fifth book. The subtitle is Adventures in Downward Mobility. So on the surface, it's about your personal challenges over the last few years financial issues arising from divorce, complications of parenting an already complicated child, the problem that a lot of us have of being a working creative professional in a creative climate that's radically changed over the last decade. You were an actress, now you're a writer as well. Um, but, you know, and maybe this is really more about my own worldview at this moment, but I read, as I read the book, it seemed to me that it was really about the downward slide of American life more broadly. Am I right about that? Or am I reading into things too much? Uh, oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I, I don't look, I, I'm not that interesting to me or to my to myself. I just think uh, that what's really interesting is is this idea and reality that of the middle of the disappearance of the middle class, basically. And and the American dream and the idea of, <laughs> I'm not saying I ever thought like I would retire per se. I'm an artist. I thought I'd work my whole life. I didn't know I would be facing such financial insecurity. And as uh, our friend Sandra Singlow says, we're living in a post-cultural, post-cash era. Uh, I, I think that's what I'm. I'm really reflecting on is it's really generational. You know, I think we're we're close to the same age, and when you look at um, sort of the position of Gen X in terms of where we land with 
our debt, with our earning capacity, with having just missed that greater financial security of the boomers that came before us, you know, we're, we're really pretty fucked. And, uh, <laughs> you know, barring a really big change in societal, um, the biggest financial destabilizer is a health crisis. And, you know, we're, we're living in a time when medical uh, costs are the biggest driver of bankruptcies in America. I mean, this is, this is appalling, you know, and, and the, what happened right before I started writing a book, if there was like an inciting incident toward the downward, uh, mobility, it was losing my health insurance through my union's earned income policies now. And that is something that's happening to people all over the country. I mean, the month I lost my health insurance through my union, five, at least 5 million other Americans were estimated to have lost it. That was in March of 2020. But, um, you know, this was happening beforehand where just, you know, jobs that come with benefits, those just don't exist anymore. And without those, without a safety net, uh, we're creating such a destabilization of people's income. Plus you add in the, you know, the gig economy. I mean, it was all these things and then divorce, which is destabilizing, which I went through as well in terms of financially, besides emotionally, um, you know, all those things contribute to, uh, you know, you've got, and then of course now COVID, um, this is a which, generation. Which wasn't yeah. even going on when you wrote the book. I mean, I can't imagine you talk about it a little bit at the end. So why don't we just kind of set the stage here? What are the years in which much of this is taking place? You've got, uh, empty nest syndrome going on. You're relatively newly divorced. You've got a kid off in college. Uh, are we talking about sort of like 2019, 2018? You know, I started writing these stories and thinking about this destabilization of middle class people. I mean, at one point, I, I made a lot of money as an actress, and I've always been, um, my friends have always nicknamed me the squirrel. I've always been a low overhead person. I was perfectly, it was always understood with me that it wasn't going to always last like that. But the total shift in the economy to, as you know, like um, in the book and magazine and writing world, just so many of those outlets disappeared and the money I'm getting paid the same thing I was getting paid 15 years ago as a oh. writer. I, I've gone down. Less. In my, if, I mean, la, if you're yes. paid the same, that's an achievement. Well, I mean, actually I'm getting paid. I mean, for a magazine article, I'm getting paid less. I've gone backwards and gone back to what I started. You know, I mean, there's just, there's just been a complete, um, deterioration of, uh, of job opportunities. Even there's magazines closing all the time. And then, um, you know, book world has its own issues, but, um, in terms of, uh, you know, the destabilization in my own life, which really reflects so many people's lives at that time of really changing to the gig economy. And this is what happened in show business as well. Um, you saw the disparity in wages start to really uh, separate in the, in the, really in the beginning, in the early aughts. And then now it's just out of control. You've got the top 1% of earners, like CEOs at companies making all the money and then the workers being paid so much less. And that's your actors who are not celebrities. They, you used to be able to negotiate a fee. Now it's all scale, which means that this whole ability to earn a living as a performer if you're not a movie star or a TV star, is just gone, you know? And that's also what that does is that takes away the benefits from healthcare and from retirement that, so that we're underfunded now. I mean, you know, we're talking about people whose names you don't know in the industry. You know, the uh, actors who constantly were working and earning a good living, putting money back into their um, communities, which is exactly the same as um, people who are uh, working, you know, in a large corporation or even factory jobs. These are union jobs. I mean, the working conditions 
are better on a set than in a factory for sure. But uh, it's the same kind of scale of economy. And so this actually, that this book started, I started writing stories from this book in 2017. And everything was happening so quickly, this sort of the, when the sort of safety net of my own life fell apart, sent Ezra, my now 22 year old child, uh, pronouns they, them, theirs. I don't have more than one child, uh, off to college. Week after I sent Ezra off to college, my dad died. Then my mom died. So I was dealing with that. And at the same time, my husband and I decided to separate. And <laughs> And then yeah, it was shortly after that, good then, yeah. yeah, good times. And then, uh, then, um, uh, then short, it was shortly after that, that the money issue started to become more of an issue because just work dried up. And then when I lost the insurance, that was, um, like two years later. So it was like, oh my God, just one domino after another of just very ordinary things that other people were going through in the country. And I mean, when your parents die, as you know, Megan, we've, we're friends, we, we've talked about these things before. Um, it's not just the emotional, uh, complex set of feelings when you have a complex relationship like I did with my parents, but for the entire two years before they passed, I was flying back and forth to Miami to help them. I was just hemorrhaging money and I couldn't work either. So, uh, because we also don't, uh, provide for, uh, you know, care for elders in this country. Um, their finances were in a shambles. I mean, you know, families are just uh, going through such a, um, and, and now, of course, with COVID, you know, again, uh, this destabilization. And I just felt like these stories that I was going through, these, these life passages were just so in the zeitgeist. And that's always what interests me. So uh, tell us about, uh, let's start with the, the home sharing. Your home is really a character in this book, your house. You, you love your house. You have been advised to sell it uh, and move into a condo, uh, which would be, I suppose, the financially prudent thing to do uh, in, in some, uh, some people's minds. But you, you hold on to your house uh, and you decide to rent out a room. And so the first guy that comes along is like a young Frenchman. Can you tell us about him? Yeah. I mean, first of all, I actually want to say, actually, this is the issue that so many people are facing, which is actually that it wasn't financially prudent for me to sell. Um, okay. I co-owned this house with my husband and I wasn't able to uh, pay him out. And yet the mortgage was, is, and still here, I'm still here, is so low. I couldn't afford to move because first of all- You bought it a long time ago. I bought it a long time ago. I have equity, but what I don't have is a is, is employment and cash. So uh, I was unable to get, uh, if, I, if I sold the house, I'd have to either pay cash and then I'd be cash poor going into a condo or, and I couldn't even afford anything. I mean, it was just, it, a lot of people are in this position where they can't afford to downsize. I couldn't get a loan to buy another house because I don't have enough income. So I'm in this position wow. where, you know, I really couldn't sell and yet I really needed to make money. And the best way for me to make money and keep my low overhead was to use the asset that I had, which is this extra bedroom. And the thing is, if course, it's not like it's an Airbnb separate from my house. It's someone I'm going to share the house with, which I didn't really think about. And when I invited this young French wannabe actor into my home and within the space of six months, because I did keep the commitment that I made to him about, and I said six months, uh, I did I was completely cured of any leftover residual uh, love of the French that I had left over from my 20s. <laughs> and, uh, you ended up sharing your home with um, two young people who were homeless. So arguably the centerpiece in, of the book is a long essay chapter, whatever you want to call it, 
called If You Lived With Me, You'd Be Home By Now. You hosted two people who were homeless. This came about through a local nonprofit called Safe Place for Youth. Tell us about that organization and how you got involved. Yeah. So um, I, you know, at that point, I was really into the taking in the tenants. I'd had a couple of tenants. Uh, The great thing about being located in Los Angeles and staying in Los Angeles uh, as a person who's a homeowner with a low mortgage was that I could get uh, writers working on TV shows uh, who were making more money than me living in my guest bedroom. So I had a series of tenants paying me well, who were actually never there. It was kind of fantastic. They were like, they were working on shows, uh, you know, like 24 hours a day. It's great. I was like, yeah, great. You're working so hard. Terrific. And, um, and they, and that was perfect. And then uh, someone canceled, uh, within like three days, they were supposed to move in three, but they were I had three days notice, couldn't find anyone. And I was really freaked out. So I happened to be listening to NPR and I heard about this, uh, organization called a safe place for youth and this host home program where they matched you in a rapid rehousing program with at risk housing insecure youth and they put them in a in you know that you get matched and then you would be hosting them in your home and and I heard this on the radio and the key word was stipend there was a stipend that went along with this so I thought okay instant you know roommate so I called them up and I went to this it was kind of like a um match.com mixer for housing insecure and people with extra bedrooms. The couple that came to live with you was actually trying to get their pet rabbit an agent so it could work in commercials. Okay. So tell us about uh, these folks. Well, first of all, let me just say that when I met them, uh, Kiana and Jesse, and they've given me permission to use their their names and tell their stories uh, because they also felt it was important that people know who is unhoused. Because I had in my mind that just sort of dangerous, shady, sketchy people were unhoused. So, um, or the, mentally ill people. Or I mean, mentally people ill we, people. The thing is, the people that we see on the street who are unhoused are, by definition, almost always, you know, serious substance abuse problems, serious mental health issues. Yeah, it's like what, that's what, the face of homelessness. Right, and that's a high acuity. Yeah, that. it's what yeah. they call the high acuity population, right? And that's what you see. And that's uh, not what is, who is actually the, the majority of people who are unhoused. So um, if, so when I met them and they had a lot of face tats, they're co- actually covered in tats. When I met them at that picnic that day, I said to the uh, head of the organization, yeah, anybody but those two. No fucking way. These dangerous gang members they and their rabbit. On their, on their face. That's yeah. what you're saying. On their right. faces. Okay. Uh, so, were they from Los Angeles originally? Where no, were they from? They are from Pennsylvania. So the interesting thing is, of course, um, I found out later that the majority of unhoused youth on the streets of Los Angeles are actually local. So this was a little bit of an anomaly. It's right. local kids who right. can't, who fall through the cracks and then either their parents can't continue to support them or sometimes, you know, that yes, they've been kicked out because of sexual identification is a very large reason why kids end up on the street. But, you know, a large majority of kids on the streets or living in their cars, it's sort of this invisible population, are college students, which is um, a horrifying thought and is actually true throughout the country. So Kiana and Jesse... Wait, wait, hang on. College students are homeless and living oh, in their cars? Yes, uh, a, a, a very large percentage. And I want to look this up so I can get this right because I it's... I don't have that in front of me, Megan. I feel terrible. Uh, well, that's okay. But okay. I mean, I, a large percentage, yeah. So, mm-hmm. Like they're, but they're paying tuition or they're 
they're studying something. Well, yes, they've managed to uh, get enough financial aid to go to college, but they're working. The majority of unhoused youth also hold jobs, but they're living in their cars or they're couch surfing, but or they're actually living on the street and they have no permanent housing. Yes, they, they cannot manage to stretch their funds to cover all their needs. We are not providing for them and their parents can't provide for them. And um, the cost of college, of course, has gone up. And this is this uh, population that we just don't realize are unhoused. Uh, Kian and Jesse both had dropped out of college. Um, both had dropped out because they needed to earn money quicker. They couldn't afford to take the time. Their families couldn't afford the bridge between the cost of tuition and uh, the amount of financial aid they were getting. They were also both contributing money back to their families working. They were working through college. Then they worked, they saved money to come to Los Angeles. They saved almost, that was the thing that I, I was so stunned with. When I moved to Los Angeles and they moved to Los Angeles, Many years later, this is decades later, they had saved about the same amount of money I had saved to come. Of course, they had worked much harder for it. They had worked factory jobs. I mean, these are not, you know, shirkers, people just trying to, you know, sponge off society. These are really hardworking and young how people. how old are they? How old are they? Um, 20 and 21. And the first thing they did when they arrived in my home was call their parents. I was stunned. I had no idea. I mean, it sounds ridiculous. But I had no idea that people who were unhoused, sounds so silly, like had parents, at least had parents they were in touch with. Now, as it turned out later, their families did not know they had been living in a car. And that really freaked me out as a mother thinking, I might not know the situation my children, my child is in, you know, and other parents might not know the parent, the kids did not want to worry their parents because their parents had other kids to support too. So that just broke my heart. And I want to ask you something actually, because I think this is relevant. I mean, people are going to be wondering, okay, these people are come from a really unstable financial background. There's a lot of struggles yet they've decided to pursue creative fields. They've tattooed their faces. Like, you know, somebody's going to be obvious, you know. Of course, of course. Possibly not not so nice question, but obvious question is like, well, then why did you get a tattoo on your face? Who do you think you are trying to be an actor? Why don't you uh, go home and get a job? So how, how, what did you learn about... Uh, the reality of their situation that would help you yeah. answer that question. Well, here, here's one thing I learned. I'm an idiot. What do I know? Here I am trying to work in old world ways, writing books, uh, you know, auditioning as an actor. Meanwhile, people who are doing things like uh, eating seafood on YouTube videos, uh, there's a woman who does that and she makes um, over a million dollars a year. What the hell do eating we eating seafood? Like yes. she's an influencer. Like she we just watch her eat. That people watch her eat. Yes. Well, Kiana, Kiana was an yeah. aspiring rapper. So she's an aspiring rapper, and all of the Lils uh who that they who they love, all the all the rappers that they love, uh also have uh face tats. And so it was all part of a very thought out strategy. In fact, when they left Pennsylvania, they didn't have face tats. They acquired them on their way to Los Angeles. And it was all part of a marketing idea. And it worked. When they got here, they were originally uh, uh, staying in hostels and, and inexpensive hotels. And then they were couch surfing. And then when that and when they ran out of couches because their social network was not as strong as say mine because 
I couch surfed when I got here and I never ran out of a place to stay. Uh, they, at the same time they were doing that, uh, they were networking. They were showing up at the clubs and the stores and the places where other rappers who they were interested in, where they had seen on Instagram and seen on TikTok, were networking. And what was getting them attention? Their face tats. This is a way to make money. I mean, when you think about it, in some ways, it is the modern iteration of coming to Los Angeles to be an actor. It's so much harder to do that now and to earn a living. It seems like what I mean, what I've learned is seems like a better plan to come here to be a rapper. Uh, there's a be- there's an easier entrance to that if you don't have the connections. Each of them was in school to study other things. Uh, Jesse was studying to be a dental hygienist, and Kiana was actually uh, going to get a degree in um, and she wanted to be work in law enforcement. So they actually were on other tracks and they looked at the numbers, thought they could do better as rappers. And I can't say that that's not a a choice that doesn't make some financial sense. I just want to mention this. So, because it's just too funny. So, you know, when, when I, when I saw the face tats, I thought, what kind of, I thought like most people my age would think, This is going to impede their ability to get work. But it turns out that all of the rappers have face tats that they're in in the world. They're looking at little Nas, little Mosey, little Uzi Vert, little Zan, all the Lils. I can't believe there are all lots of rappers with the name Lil in front of them. So like, okay, but like somebody's going to be hearing this and they're going to say, how can you look at the, how can you make the assessment that it makes more financial sense to try to make it as a rapper where there's probably like, I don't know, a one in 100,000 chance of making that work financially versus being a dental hygienist where, no, you're not going to get rich, but there will never be, there will always be a need for dental hygienists. Well, yeah, no, no, listen, I, you know, uh, I can't, I can't parse that. The The thing is when you, the one thing I, I think to remember is these are young people, right? No matter what someone's choice is and part of what you're signing up for when you do the host home program and something that really changed the way I think about how we deal with housing insecurity in America, is that it's a housing first model. So what does that mean, Megan? It means that the most important uh, the most important goal of that program is to get kids into a stable housing situation. You don't want people to fall into chronic homelessness. So the choices they're making about what kind of profession they're going to go into, that's not really my business. I mean, that's an interesting part of the story to me because it speaks to the, the new economy. You know, being a TikToker is, you know, and making money doing that is part of the gig economy. Do I think that's a good choice? God, no. Although I can understand why now that I understand sort of way that this has been a disruption in the entertainment industry. I mean, I myself was a TV host, right? I did that coming from an acting and a media background. That world ended for me when reality stars, people who had no experience hosting television, all began to get those jobs. So there was a total sea change in who got employment in a field that I thought I had trained for. So I'm not sure I, or really, you know, I I don't know that I'm a good prognosticator of what's a good, good potential job in the future. Well, that's why I'm asking. I'm not like sitting here obsessing about, you know, not becoming a dental hygienist. I just like you, I think it's really interesting and it's actually emblematic of this larger phenomenon that we're talking about like you know if if sort of being a professional is there is not as much currency in the whole notion of professionalism because 
for instance, the professional actors were replaced by reality stars. And now TikTokers are replacing even even the reality stars. So I can understand the the sort of line of thinking that would lead somebody to say like, well, you know, being a, you know, having just a normal job, being a normie in a, in a small town and, you know, having a modest sort of life maybe isn't like, that's, that's not the American dream well, in any way. Right. Well, you know, the <laughs> thing, the thing is, that, and the reason why I really go into it, and I just want to make this distinction that like, as a host in this program, the role that I took on invited people into my home, part of the agreement of that is that you're not going to try to influence the choices of profession. They tell you this phrase that I thought about every single minute of the day. Youth do not always make choices that we uh, believe in. Um, and and I, uh, outside of issues of safety, I tried to keep my own judgments out of my dealings with them because also they're young people. The hope is that young people will not fall through the cracks, for instance, and fall into chronic homelessness. That program is really just dealing with stopping this cycle of people falling into chronic homelessness and that by having a stable environment, who knows, maybe they would decide not to be rappers or whatever choices they would make would be better thought out choices because they had stable housing. I wanted to write about their situation because that fit into the larger narrative of the story I'm telling about America and the destabilization of of, of the finances of the general population. Because for instance, the towns they were coming from have the highest opiate, opioid uh, rates in the country of drug using. Uh, there is no employment in those towns except fracking. All the other jobs have disappeared. You know, when the two of them moved here, to Los Angeles. It had been right after their local mall, which was their only sort of uh, a connection to culture, a movie theater, just places to gather. It was raised and turned into a fracking uh, site. You know, we have decimated those towns. They didn't feel like there was a future in that town. There weren't job opportunities other than in the fracking industry primarily. So, you know, this idea of staying in your hometown it was not, was not that, that's, that's not a, a possibility. And so like other generations before them, they migrated to the big city to find work. What kind of work seemed ridiculous to me? Oh my God, TikTokers, YouTubers. But that, you know, I, I'm willing to accept that I could be wrong about that. And of course, that just puts me out of a job. Uh, you know, I, I really, I, I just thought about like what I'm doing at home, trying to make a sentence work better when, you know, when people are, are selling things on TikTok. I don't, well, it doesn't make sense also- to me. Yeah. And there's also, you know, even when you get into middle age, when you are a creative professional, I mean, you and I have talked about this. This is what all of us talk about all the time is like we have to sort of reinvent our marketing strategy, meaning we have to have our own marketing strategy. Like, you know, people like us really don't understand how the system works. And yet uh, we are not going to survive unless we figure it out to some degree. I mean, I always say with this podcast, like if I was going to do social media properly, uh, in terms of marketing this show, that is like a full-time job. I would have to hire somebody for whom that was their full-time job in order to do it properly. And as it stands, like, I hate doing it at all. (laughs) So, uh, yeah, it's I, and I, I'm asking this, you know, again, because I do think this is really at the heart of your book. You have all these really delightful stories and and I, I want to talk about them individually. But I do think it's it's worthwhile to kind of drill down on what this is saying about this really, really much, much larger, broader. Yeah. Dynamic. And of course, it's you know, it's it's not just people in the artistic community everybody I know in every profession who's around the same age as me. Again, it's just also, I think, um, 
look, this, the, the data, actually, the numbers that are behind the stories of this book speak just to itself. I could have written a book which just said Gen X holds the largest amount of student debt. Not only are people still paying off their own debt, they're paying off their kids' debt. Gen X is also the most underfunded for a retirement generation. I mean, you know, for people who are just a little bit older than us, friends say things like, oh, I'm so glad I'm, I'm like, you know, about to, you know, get out of the, the, you know, the, the daily grind of work and just scrape by with having had a job that gave me retirement benefits or, Oh, I'm going to turn 65 and, and get my social security or get, you know, my Medicaid and, you know, Medicare and just, you know, there's, but we're too young for that. So we're like, and I'm not savvy enough in the media, new media to be really capitalizing on what generations younger than us are. So it's really written from this position of the very precarious position, you know, economists have written, I'm not the person saying this, that the most economically vulnerable generations in a downturn economy or stressed economy, like we're in right now, are people close to retirement and people just starting out in the working world. So here I am as someone who's close to retirement. I'm, I'm 59, so I'm close to retirement, but I don't have a lot of years. Well, and there's no retirement. Let's just, I call that us the never retirement generation. And then I also have a Gen Z kid who is just starting yeah. out and uh, just graduated from Bard College into the pandemic COVID class of 2020. So that's so we're both of us in a very similar situation, you know, in terms yeah. of so, instability. So I want to talk about Ezra. So your child, Ezra, yeah. identifies as non-binary and uses yes. they, them pronouns. Yes. You use those pronouns throughout the book when yes. referring to them. You're respectful, yet you maintain a relatable, um, I don't want to say bemusement, but maybe compassionate befuddlement. Let's put it that way. Oh my God, uh, befuddlement. I feel like I just aged 10 years with the word befuddlement. She well, is befuddled. Compassionate, <laughs> compassionate. I don't know. So like, yeah. you know, you, you explain, um, you, you, you talk about uh, Ezra's sort of, you know, identity journey in a way that is, um, I think, very open-minded and um, really uh, respectful. There's really no other word for it. But you also like... You know, you we don't have the sense that we're being like, you know, offered a bunch of, you know, Kool-Aid about these sort of larger, you know, this kind of identity politics culture. So how did you pull that off? I would call it maybe compassionate outrage. The first time I heard about the non-binary pronouns, I thought, okay, I get it. This is interesting. There's historical precedent and ancient societies to a third sex. And it seemed like something that made sense intellectually. Then when Ezra decided to adopt that, I thought, this is ridiculous. <laughs> this is, this is, I was completely suspect of this. And I thought. And this happened at college. Just it so happened in college. So Ezra, not, this was not an issue in high school. Or no. That this um, happened at uh, you know, I thought it was, as my mother always said, a phase. That was the, you know, a phase you're going through. A phase. I, that that phrase was always bandied about in my childhood about everything I was interested in. Yeah, you know, when I when the idea of the non-binary identification first uh, entered my consciousness through the culture, not through my own child, I was really supportive of it, like I am with a lot of things in the abstract. You know, I think of myself as a very progressive person. I have that, you know, immediately, uh, yes, of course, I'm going to embrace that. And then when my kid came home and said they were a uh, identifying as a non-binary, I was like, what the fuck? <laughs> you know, this is ridiculous. This is like a snowflakery. I mean, I, I'm embarrassed to admit that. And of course, that and this was in college. So this was in college, from college yeah. and made this announcement. Right. And the thing is, is that's what I want to write about is when I 
bump up against my own hypocrisy. That's always interesting to me, you know? Um, and, and that's what happened in this case. I really thought, oh, this is like a phase with my own kid. This is like, they're trying to, you know, glom onto an identity at the you know, a couple months before they had said something to me about like, it's really not easy to be a cisgender white kid, mom. (laughs) And I I thought, yeah, I really get that and be male. I mean, like, who who wants to be that right now? And then uh, I heard myself, at least my inner voice, because to my kid, I was saying, okay, okay, making, you know, a little bit of kind of snarky comments, but basically going along with it. And then I realized, wait a minute, I I think I'm doing that thing that, you know, this older generation did to my generation and other generations before me with the gay community, which I was really a part of in the in the early 80s I moved to New York and I was embraced by the uh West Village uh, by the circle of gay men who became like I had the best gay dad a girl could ever want I was estranged from my own family at that moment and that community took me in in a way that I don't really, I didn't deserve, but I was so lucky. And I I thought about them and the struggles they had gone through that I heard about, but couldn't relate to personally. And I made an intellectual decision with my kid that I would just uh, reform my attitude and just accept it and accept it as real and meaningful. And I, I, you know, I, first of all, I think that's a good strategy for parents. I think one thing is true, which is that when you, when you give your kid uh, a blowback from a choice they're making, well, that's the perfect way to get them to go straight into it, right? So, you know, it's right. all you have to do is say, don't do that. And that's what they're going to do. Well, that's like they always said, if you want to, you know, if you want to dissuade your teenagers from having sex, you just, uh, you know, describe in detail the sex you're having with their other parents. Oh, yes. Yes. (laughs) Not even in detail, just make an allusion to it. It's a great idea. But so then, so then I, I did that thing of, you know, acting as if, and just completely did a 360 in my attitude with my kid. And I really have come around to this I Jen, I am a really big fan of Gen Z. I don't want to sound that like, sound like, you know, um, I guess like I sound like a fan girl, but I there's a lot of interesting things about this generation that I didn't see on the outset that I I really admire now. So one of the things is this gender identity and I feel like the future that they are leading us to is something that we can't really see yet but might look a lot like the sci-fi movie Logan's Run, which, I mean, the good parts of it, not the part where you have to like check out because the earth can't support you at like age 30, but the, but the part where everyone dresses the same. And there is like sort of a, a more egalitarian view of, of the role of males and females. And I, I feel like what they're heading towards, I, I bought it. You know what? I drank the Kool-Aid. I feel like th- what we're seeing is we created this problem, which is, you know, we gave, you know, once we have the internet and our social medias, and now my kid, of course, isn't on Facebook, they're on Instagram, right? And on TikTok. But once everybody became their own media personality, living in their own world and their own brand, I get why they feel they have to just tell the world who they are as much as I find it completely annoying and like way over, I mean, oversharing and information I don't want to have. And why do you need to do that? I know why, because we created an economy and a world where everyone has to broadcast their, what they had for dinner and their sexuality. And this is how they establish themselves in the world. I feel like, you know, we, we're just living with the world we gave them. That is so interesting. I think you're right. Although, in fairness, we did not give them that. No. We, I don't think we, Generation X, are not responsible for social media. So no, let's no, no, but, but I mean, the, 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 I know. how are 
are they supposed to live in the world? I mean, it's so funny. Like we're like, we're, we're so angry. They're online all the time. Give me, what are we supposed to do? This is the world they were born into. You know, it's, 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 it seems disingenuous uh, for people looking at the way they've adapted. They, these younger generations have adapted to the world they were born into with outrage. Um, hey, I, did I lose you for a minute there? Oh, yeah. Sorry. Are you back? Megan, I lost you for a minute there. Yeah, my my cat climbed on my computer and moved my computer. Obviously, I'm having a problem here. So um, I'm back. So can you say oh, that back. again? Okay. Yeah, sorry. Okay. <laughs> oh, my God. Technical stuff today is You know ridiculous. what? Actually... <laughs> we just had a, a, a brief uh, technical difficulty, but it came at the perfect time because we were talking about how hard it is to adjust <laughs> to these new uh, conditions of trying to, uh, of trying to make a living. So you're, you're in Los Angeles. I'm in New York. Uh, we both have podcasts. I, we, before we started this conversation, we spent half an hour trying to figure out the I audio. Oh my God. Um, I, I have, thrown my dog uh three bully sticks uh over the course of this conversation to keep <laughs> barking. um it also it was uh it started there was no heat like all morning and it's cold and snowing outside and the minute we started recording the uh the heat started coming on and making cacophonous clanking sounds which i'm sure is gonna show up on the track so this is where we are we're like in our 50s and um this is what we're dealing with well, and i think it's all it's very germane actually to the, it the is, discussion. you know one thing i wanted to say you know um is that one of the you know one thing i'm writing to in this book was um i and, and, and I have to say, this was obviously a mistake. Um, one of the reckonings I've had to make, and I write in writing about this in the book, is that I didn't start out in my career with the idea of being rich or making money. Because the idea, I, I expect, I wanted to work hard and make money, right? Um, but I didn't realize that I really should have tried to become rich because there's no real making money. Uh, there's just becoming rich, you know. Yeah, no, it's it's like Fran Lebowitz. Did you see the the recent um, the Martin Scorsese uh, yes. series? She, there's a moment yes. where Fran Lebowitz says, "You know, there's two kinds of people in the world: people who think there's such a thing as having enough money, and people with money." Yes. Well, there's a saying in the theater world, which is, "You can't make a living doing theater, but you can make a killing." Do you look back on your mistakes and think, okay, that's the one that really did me in? Is there a fork in the road that you imagine in retrospect that you see? You know, uh, having gone down that road so many times, I mean, it's really funny. I was with a couple of friends yesterday, social distancing. Whenever you try to get into that hot tub time machine and go backwards, uh, a friend of mine was negotiating with uh, her idea of how many years back she would like to go to make different choices. Well, if I was, she's in her fifties, so so just just twenty five, not even back younger than that. And I was like, well, forty, forty. I would just go back to forty and say, oh, okay, the jobs I turned down, thinking that money was always going to be coming at a certain rate, I really could. That when I was forty, I really made some choices. I it, it's of course pointless, and the truth is, is that that isn't really what animates my life and my sense of uh, purpose. Um, but I, you know, in, in my daily living, that's not. I, I'm not the person who sits there and thinks, "Oh, I if I only had the summer house on Martha's Vineyard." I think that. Sure, every day between June and the end of August, but I don't think that every day of my life. It just isn't what animates me, and it, it and it had it been, I I would have made different choices. But what really is important is, you know, how do I have a uh, just a, a a quality of living that's that's consistent? How do I have health insurance? 
I want to touch on something that's not in the book. Back this past November, you wrote a, a stunning piece uh, in the New York Times about uh, getting a COVID test and um, finding yourself on a pretty serious health journey. I don't know how much you want to get into this, but um, you know, we're talking sort of you know laughingly about medical insurance and all of this, but this has really serious ramifications for you right now because you actually ended up with a pretty serious cancer diagnosis. So can you talk about that a little bit? Uh, yeah. Uh, it, so um, it, it, I wrote about this in, in the Times in this winter. Um, what had happened was after Ezra got home from college, uh, we were doing the quarantine, you know, the COVID, the COVID dance, and we had uh, quarantined in the house. And of course, hilariously, the idea was Ezra would come home quarantine in the guest bedroom, but I wasn't renting out at that moment. I would leave, you know, uh, meals outside their, their door. And, uh, then after 14 days, we'd get this COVID test and we could unmask. Well, of course I ended up quarantined in my bedroom, scurrying out with my mask to get food. And Ezra had them run of the house. I mean, it was, nothing was going as planned, but this was really unexpected. We went for a COVID test and the chanciness of what happened next is going to affect my lifespan without a doubt. This is the, that this day that I'm going to describe has changed the course of my life. So we went to get a COVID test. We went to Dodger Stadium. The line was really long. We would have, if we had we gone to the Dodger Stadium for the COVID test, we would have been in our car um, <clears throat> done the, uh, test, handed the results. And we would have found out that we were both COVID negative a couple of days later. We tried to get tests through, um, the health, uh, my, uh, the, the, uh, my GP, which is at a, uh, healthcare clinic that was not, uh, offering tests at that moment, unless you had symptoms. I didn't have symptoms. I had a little cough, but I mean, I, you know, nothing of note. So uh, we were turned down to get tested there. We ended up at an urgent care. At that urgent care, as part of the perfunctory questions they asked, the doctor asked us on the phone. We were on the phone in the car. Uh, Do you have any symptoms? And I said, I have a little cough. No big deal. After we took the test, we were told the doctor wanted to see us. We waited in a waiting room for an hour and the doctor, random, rando doctor at a urgent care next door to a Trader Joe's came in and said, you know, you've got a, a cough because your COVID tests are negative. They told us immediately. Um, they had processed our tests quickly um, because he was concerned about this cough. So we waited a few hours. We got this result. And he said, I think you should have an x-ray. And I was like, what? I don't need an x-ray. And uh, this is ridiculous. And he, he, for some reason that I will never know, insisted that I had an x-ray. And my kid, who had been in the house with me for 14 days, said, yeah, mom, I have heard you coughing. And I, between that and being worn down from the weight, I had this x-ray, came back in the room and said, no, no big deal, but I'm glad you did that. We're on the freeway on the way home. The car breaks down. We're on the side of the road. AAA is not coming because it's a pandemic and for uh, they weren't coming. We were just stuck there. The phone rings and it's the doctor who says, I've made a mistake. I read the wrong x-ray. You have something on your lungs. You should get back here immediately. And Ezra, I had, him, I had the doctor on speakerphone because this was not any sort of thing I was expecting. And we were both just stunned. And that was the beginning of three months of testing and other scans that uh, ended up in a diagnosis of stage four lung cancer. And um, the thing about the kind of lung cancer I have, which is non-small cell lung cancer, it's not associated with having been a smoker. And there's a really troubling increase of women in particular who are being diagnosed. The percentage of women being diagnosed with this form of cancer has grown. And uh, the problem is, is 
typically you are not diagnosed until it's stage four, meaning it's in more than one organ of your body uh, because it doesn't have symptoms until it's really sp- spread. And that's is there a reason yeah. that we're seeing an increase in women? Is we it don't environmental? Know. We do not know. It's probably environmental. Um, and there's uh, what's one of the reasons why I wrote the piece in the New York Times. I had never heard about this. I was worried about breast cancer. You know, uh, I mean, that's what I think. You know, has gotten a lot. Of, it's this is that 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 cancer sucking up all the cancer air. You know, I, I I knew about that. This was just not on my radar or anyone's that I knew of, frankly, even though I did know people who had had lung cancer, I didn't understand that it wasn't related to smoking. And I didn't know how many people were being diagnosed about it. We're having a bit of a moment right now of um, increased attention about lung cancer because Rush Limbaugh just died of lung cancer and Screech from Saved by the Bell. And let me just say, it's a terrible way that my brain works because immediately my brain says, oh God, I can't die of this right now. I'm going to be paired with Screech and Rush. Fuck. I want it. Can I get a transfer to a different cancer? I mean, that's how my brain works, right? Um, but they don't know why uh, it's particularly high rates of women. I feel like, oh, is it going to come out that it's something in dry cleaning fluid? It's something, I mean, you know, I, I feel like it's it's going to be something like that, you know, or like, remember at one point there's been, they were found a connection between antiperspirant, an ingredient, uh, aluminum and antiperspirant. Oh, and that's right. That's right. Yes. There was something about, also, there was something about shaving your armpits, I feel like, was yeah. It's going to turn out that something I've been doing as a vain woman, like it's going to be that that Chanel uh, uh, base that I that I splurge on because I didn't go for the drugstore uh, makeup. I'm going to get fucked because of that. I just know it's my 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 vanity is going to do me in somehow. It's going to it's going to happen like that. But um, there's. There's good news and there's bad news about this diagnosis. Um, the bad news, I'm talking with the bad news. <laughs> the bad news is that I live in America and our healthcare uh, system, the, the very worst thing that can happen is a chronic illness. That's what we're really unprepared for um, because the costs are so astronomical over a lifetime. You know, there's this is why medical bankruptcies are the largest um, factor of bankruptcy. You you have health insurance. You have health insurance right now. Yeah. Well, I'm paying for it. Sure. Yeah. Like, you know, like 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 you like you do. But the problem is, of course, with a a chronic illness, you know, there's never going to be a time in the foreseeable future because the issue with lung cancer is there's no cure. Uh, there are treatments and that's part of the good news is that I have a gene mutation that happens to respond to a new class of drugs that targets this gene and inhibits the cancerous growth. That's the good news is that there's tremendous research and there's a very good potential that a cure will be found in the next few years. In fact, again, this is this horrible association with COVID, which is that because COVID attacks the lungs, there's been a lot of research in the field of cancer and lungs and, and, and how, and, and how to, um, uh, care for lungs is going to benefit me as someone with lung cancer. By the way, when I'm saying this, it all feels like I'm talking about someone else still. I, I don't know who I'm talking about when yeah, I you're say this. incredibly sanguine about this. Well, okay, I mean, so. let me just say it's because it doesn't seem real. Um, so, you know, the, the, the COVID research will help people with lung cancer. But the bad news is, and this is why I wrote about this, it's not just me, because I'm paying for my health insurance. I am not in as as, as dire straits as other people in the groups that I, I, of course, now I'm set up with all these support groups. And there are people in these groups who can't afford the medication. 
and there are subsidies and and you know the drug companies offer a certain amount of subsidies and it depends if you qualify or don't qualify and um people are struggling and this is because of our failure of our system and and it again it's one of these destabilizations i don't know how to prepare for that for the future for the amount of money that it will cost and that's not what we want to be thinking about of course you know for people with any kind of chronic illness you know we are a population like who couldn't still have many years of productivity of giving back to society and to be so financially strained is just first of all it's not healthy it's and 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 you know my ironically one of my neighbors died of lung cancer, the same kind of lung cancer I have, um, who just didn't have as good health care as I have. But, you know, I'm I'm really lucky. I'm doing really well right now. I have this um, uh, gene mutation targeted therapy that I'm doing that I do. I do uh, cough a little bit more than I used to and have to. My, my voice has actually changed a little bit from this whole compromised lung situation. Uh, but you know, in, in general, uh, my side effects are few and I'm, I'm, you know, living a a pretty normal life. I'm just so lucky. And this is why I titled that essay, the coronavirus saved my life. I have, uh, I have this cancer in both lungs, but had I not been diagnosed now, I, there was every reason to think it would have spread further. And then, uh, that would have been a a much worse situation for me. So, um, I so lucky for COVID, which absolutely I wouldn't wish to be this lucky. You know what I mean? My last question, Annabelle, and it may be an unanswerable one probably is, but I'll ask it anyway. What would it take for you to kind of get out all of this in a satisfying way? What kind of uh, windfall or just financial uh, game changer would you have to experience? Would you have to get like a big job, sell a big book? What, What would it take for, say, in five years, your situation to look decent, good, the way you might have imagined it 40 years ago? Uh, you know, that's a really good question. And I'm really glad you asked Megan, because the thing that I'm really interested in at, for me and for, you know, our society in general is universal health care. That's what would make the biggest difference in my life. That's what makes a difference. Wow. Universal wow. health care. Uh, if, if I didn't have that hanging over my head, uh, like other people, uh, you know, I had that before, uh, this diagnosis, but now it's, it's the cause of my biggest stress is the lack of health insurance guaranteed in this country. And I, 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 every other issue I feel are issues you know, okay, I, I'm I'm going to take that on, you know, okay, so we're in a gig economy. Uh, yeah, I mean, I want to continue working. I'm not, I don't live that way. I'm not that, I was never that person who was like, I want the big windfall from the TV show that lasts five years. Yeah, that would be great. But the really important thing for me, and I think for everybody, is a general standard of living. And I don't see how we can have that without the threat that one diagnosis can just turn all of your best laid plans and conservative strategies into dust. Well, Annabelle, I can't thank you enough for taking all this time and for being so candid. Um, but I also really want to make sure that we emphasize that this book is hilariously funny as you always are. Um, I I think it's, I I really, I love all of your work, but, um, I think this is your, your best work. I think this is really, um, an outstanding book because 
it is, you are the raconteur. You never take yourself very seriously. Um, you, you go into things in ways that, I mean, I laughed out loud many, many times, but at the center of this, um, are some really serious issues. And so, um, you, you, you split the difference really, really expertly. I just want to let everybody know that. Well, I really appreciate that, Megan. I feel like, you know, I I like to think that if I had been on the Titanic when it was going down, you know, I, I don't play a musical instrument, but I like to think I would have been making some kind of jokes. (laughs) (laughs) That was my interview with actress and writer, Annabelle Gerwich. Annabelle is the author of five books, including the bestseller and Thurber Prize finalist, I See You Made an Effort. She's written for The New Yorker, The New York Times, The Los Angeles Times, The Wall Street Journal, LA Magazine, and Hadassah, among other publications. Her latest book out this week is You're Leaving When? Adventures in Downward Mobility, published by Counterpoint Press. You've been listening to The Unspeakable Podcast. You can subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Podcasts. And for more information, you can visit theunspeakablepodcast.com. If you'd like to support the podcast, this is a great time to join the Patreon page at patreon.com slash theunspeakable. I've recently added a new feature, informal video conversations with all kinds of interesting people. These are available only to Patreon subscribers, and I'm going to have more good stuff there really soon. In the meantime, I hope you'll tune into the show next week. I'll announce the next guest very soon on the website and all the usual places. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Hi, I'm Frank. I don't like change. And I just saw a billboard for this new BJ's Wholesale Club talking about how you could pay as little as two cents a gallon for gas. Look, when gas prices are this low, we can't complain about gas prices being too high. No, sir. I wouldn't join BJ's Wholesale Club. Hey, thanks, Frank. But if you do want to sign up now to get a $40 BJ's digital gift card, join the new BJ's Wholesale Club, opening soon in Ross Township. Visit BJ's.com slash Ross Township or the BJ's Membership Center at the Block Northway. Offer valid for a limited time. Addiction is a disease that impacts all of us. Whether you, your neighbor, friend, or family member is struggling, everyone feels the pain of addiction. Recovery Centers of America, Monroeville, wants you to know that addiction treatment works and recovery is possible. Call 1-888-RECOVERY-NOW for help for yourself or a loved one. Recovery Centers of America have helped thousands of patients across the United States and here in Western Pennsylvania start a better, healthier way of life through their evidence-based in patient and outpatient treatment programs. The caring team of physicians and clinicians at Recovery Centers of America see their patients as so much more than their addiction and are deeply committed to providing expert care with heart. Recovery Centers of America knows that every day in active addiction is a day in isolation, which is why they admit new patients 24-7 year-round. Don't wait. Make the call that can change everything. Call 1-888-RECOVERY-NOW.